to the Totally Buggin' Podcast, the podcast about all things creepy crawl. We are your host organisms, Cami And Faith. Today I want to talk about an insect that I once held in a view of disdain, but recently learned something about them that made me see them in a totally new light. Today we're going to be talking about waxworms. Do you know anything about waxworms, Faith? I know absolutely nothing about waxworms. Awesome. I knew very little about waxworms until about maybe two weeks ago. Okay. So a waxworm is not actually a worm. It's the caterpillar larvae of wax moths. Oh, okay. Their scientific name is Galeria melanella, which I think is fun to say, but I could not find any information about the roots of those words, which, you know, I always like to know for bugs. I think that's fun. Pardon me, insects, not bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're a part of the family Peralidae, which are snout moths. Snout moths, what does that mean? It's just kind of a descriptive name. Their their faces kind of look like they have a snout. So they have like, you know, like not a dog snoot, but like I call like, you know how some (laughs) dogs have like longer noses? Yes. Okay. Sort of like that. Wax moths are nest parasites in bee colonies. They eat cocoons, pollen, and molted exoskeleton, like the dead skin of the bees. And they get to these food sources by chewing through beeswax. Okay. If you've ever worked in a bee lab, you have definitely seen these. Our lab is kind of infested with them. Oh, I remember you told me this. Yeah, through no fault of my PI or anything like that. (laughs) Uh, anytime you order commercially reared bees, mm-hmm. you're generally going to get some wax moths. Mm-hmm. They're really annoying. Um, I have probably killed hundreds of them. I'm going to show Faith what they look like real quick. And oh, okay. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to ask Faith to sort of describe what you're seeing. So I'm going to show okay. her the caterpillar larvae first. Okay. So the larvae look like little, like yellow, kind of have a pinkish tint worms. They're like, short they're not very long and like then, the size of a grain of rice yeah exactly mm-hmm. um and then I'm assuming this is their head it looks like they have little like brownish red eyes kind of if that's their head yeah the okay. I believe the brown is actually their mouth parts oh okay mm-hmm. it's a little bit hard to see because I they're so teeny. yeah these are some dead ones that I found in the lab mm-hmm. and I put them in ethanol so that they wouldn't make my room smell weird Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. And then the moths are right here. Oh, I feel like I've seen these before. Mm Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't know how to describe them. They kind of look like flies, um, but not really. Like, the eyes are smaller. In what way do you think they look like flies? Um, Just like, now that I'm looking at it, they look they kind of have two, they kind of have two wings, maybe. Or maybe, no, they have four. It's just because they're wet. That's why it looks like that. And you can see in the ethanol, you see how it's cloudy. Yeah. Those are their scales that have kind of washed off. Mm, Okay. Uh, And they've got those long antennae. Mm -hmm. And you see, like... Do you see the snout mouth? And, like, they kind of look like like little tiny pinchers, but they come together to form the snout. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what a waxworm and wax moth look like. Mm Mm-hmm. While they are a pest, they are bred captively for two major reasons. Do you want to guess what it is? Ooh. Mm. Okay, I'm not going to guess food. Or wait, I'm going to guess food, but for livestock. Like some kind of livestock. Okay. 
Okay, that's my one guess, and then I have another guess. I'm gonna say a textile, like a fabric or something. Okay, your first guess was actually very close. Okay. Wax worms are captively bred as a food source for captive insectivorous plants and animals, especially reptiles. Okay. You can get them from a lot of pet stores as mm-hmm. a special treat for your pet gecko. Oh, okay, cool. They're not super nutritional compared to crickets and mealworms, so veterinarians recommend them just as a treat for your bearded dragon. Just as not, a Yeah, not yeah. as a everyday thing. It's mm-hmm. like you wouldn't want to have a cupcake every single day. Oh, no, that would get... Yeah, but a couple That would start to make your tummy hurt. Yeah. Every once in a while, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're reared captively, they tend to eat grains and honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't pull apart uh, bees' nest to give them no. stuff to eat. No, <laughs> I think that would be counterintuitive since, you know... It would be a bit impractical, yes. Yeah, you study bees, not mm-hmm. waxworms. Yeah. Uh, the second thing that they're used for is fishing bait. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, have you ever heard of waxies? I haven't heard of it, but I have seen like uh, fishing bait, mm-hmm. just like and like some of the lures, like the smaller ones. They yep. now that I think about it, they kind of look like this. Yeah, they're called waxies by fishermen. That's mm-hmm. kind of the slang for them, okay. and they are, I believe, used to catch a lot of varieties of sunfish and panfish. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I am not an ichthyologist, so I do not know a whole lot about why they would be preferable for those particular types of fish or why they're good bait, but they're very popular for that. Yeah. What's your perception of waxworms right now, just based on the things that we've talked about so far, before I go ahead and tell you something that's going to completely change your mind about them? Okay. I would say that they're bad for like honeybees, obviously. So if like you're in, or like bees in general. So Mm -hmm. if you're in a bee context where like you're taking care of bees or commercially growing bees, Mm -hmm. waxworm bad. But I can see how they have like other aspects where it's like, oh, they're food for, like they're treats for lizards and reptiles um, or fishing bait. Like I can see why they would have other uses as well. Yeah, I didn't even know about the fishing bait or the reptile food aspect until I started doing research for this episode. Mm -hmm. So until very recently, I just thought of them as the really annoying things that get into my little bee cages and then fly in my face while I'm trying to feed them. (laughs) Are they cute? Are they pretty? Just kind of... They're ugly. Yeah, they just... (laughs) They look like worms. They're not anything spectacular and the moths they're very dull in color yeah they're and they're not very um like when I think of moth these don't look very like moth like like moths I think are like bigger or luna luna moths or even just like the ones that are outside that chill on the tree they're Mm -hmm. they're like I'm holding my little purple ones yeah yeah they're big they're bigger though like Mm -hmm. they're bigger in size so yeah so yeah My perception until recently was that they're annoying. Mm -hmm. I hate them. (laughs) And they're they're ugly. They're not cool. They're not cute. But I recently found out something really cool about an accidental discovery. This is some discovery of penicillin level 
we, I was just talking about that and I was so happy. I got to explain mm-hmm. what it was and I love accidental science, I will say. Okay, so, why, don't, why don't you explain that reference real quick? Okay, so basically penicillin, um, the first antibiotic that was like produced and widely used was made on accident by Alexander Fleming because he left something out in his lab. I believe he was working with like Petri dishes Mm -hmm. and he left these out in the lab overnight, which I don't know if any of our listeners would have worked in a lab, but that's a big no-no. Like Uncovered. Uncovered. You are not supposed to just leave uncovered Petri dishes out in the lab. But he goes home for the weekend, comes back, and he sees these big patches of mold on his Petri dishes Um, and anywhere like in this circle, basically that there's this mold, there's also no bacterial growth. So he puts two and two together and says, Hmm, something about this mold is killing all the bacteria and then purifies it, figures it all out. And bada big, bada boom, we have penicillin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So think penicillin when the, the amount that this blew my mind when I found out about this. Okay. I'm excited. Okay. Okay. So we're going to be talking about the accidental discovery made by molecular biologist and amateur beekeeper Frederica Bertaccini. So in 2017, she accidentally discovered that wax worms can degrade plastic. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Like like how there are some species of bacteria that can degrade plastic? Yes, and we will get to that. I need to know now. Okay. How did this happen? Yes. All right, a lot of beekeepers will store leftover honeycombs during the winter for them to clean off and be able to use again. So they give the bees a little bit of something to work with that they don't have to completely rebuild everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. So she stores the leftover honeycombs. When she comes back in the spring to retrieve them, she saw that they were infested with waxworms. Mm -hmm. So she cleans up the honeycomb and puts the waxworms into a plastic bag. Just a standard plastic bag, the kind that you'd get at Walmart. They ate their way out of the plastic bag. They ate their way out of the plastic bag. Oh, my god. She came back later and saw that the bag was now completely covered in holes. Okay, so they ate ate their way through the plastic bag. Did that have any, like, ill effects on them later? Because usually when animals eat plastic, like, it'll kill them or make them really sick. Right. So they're just fine. They were fine. Uh, Bertaccini believed that the waxworms had degraded the plastic, causing the holes. Mm -hmm. This is a major discovery. It's the first known animal enzyme capable of PET degradation at room temperature. So PET is just short for polyethylene, which Mm -hmm. is the type of plastic that makes up about about 30% of synthetic plastic pollution in Mm -hmm. the world. So it's a major problem. Of course, this is a really exciting discovery, but you don't want to go out and make such a, an outrageous claim without, without having evidence. Yep. So I'm going to have you kind of talk through some of the biotechnology that was used to sort of describe and confirm this discovery. Okay. All right. So her methods were using gel permeation chromatography to okay. separate molecules based on size. Yeah. You're familiar with that? Yeah, so um, chromatography is any kind of method where you can uh, separate molecules based on size, like there's gas chromatography Mm -hmm. for uh, gases, 
And the idea is that you build like some kind of contraption with a filter Mm -hmm. that you would let your molecules pass through and the smaller ones are going to come out like either faster or depending on what kind of chromatography you're doing, um, they're going to be the only things that come out at all. So from gel chromatography, I would assume that she's running like her medium that she's running it through instead of like gas is uh, gel. Like she's running it through gel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's how she separated the molecules. Okay. And then to characterize them, she used GCMS. What does that stand for? Gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gas chromatography is what I just talked about. And then mass spectrometry. I kind of know how to run a mass spec. It's mm-hmm. it's based on size again, isn't it? Or it's based on weight. molecular weight. There we go. So this is to identify the molecular fragments that were separated out by the gel permeation chromatography. Waxworm saliva contains the enzymes that mm-hmm. she was trying to categorize. These enzymes break the large hydrocarbon chains of mm-hmm. polyethylene into smaller oxidized chains that yeah. can become safely part of the environment. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. Just hearing that already because that is such like a big problem. A lot of PET is like, um, it can be like medical waste, like medical plastics, but also I believe some of it is used for like food containers. And, like, food plastics. Yeah, plastic bottles, plastic cups, plastic bags. All of those things use PET. It's Mm -hmm. the most common plastic pollutant, if I'm not mistaken. It's that 30% number again. Yeah. So we've got two enzymes that were identified out of these processes that Mm -hmm. were identified as the enzymes that are breaking down the plastic from the waxworms. Mm Mm-hmm. They were called Demetra and Ceres after the Greek and Roman goddesses of agriculture. Did she name them? I think so. That is so cool. Good <laughs> for her. Those are good names. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if the listeners are into science at all, you will quickly find out that scientists are really bad at naming things. Oh, yeah. They usually just, like, name them after themselves or name them something completely counterintuitive to what they're describing or just like random letters. Yeah. Do you know about the sonic hedgehog gene? No. Basically, this is an example that's taught in a lot of medical ethics classes because there was this gene that was identified by some scientists and it was named the sonic hedgehog gene after the character Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm -hmm. It's a signaling molecule that's key in regulating embryonic morphogenesis in animals. Mm. So if something goes wrong with that gene... That's going to be... Embryonic means, Mm -hmm. like, maybe embryonic animal development is a developing baby. So if you go... Imagine you're a parent, and you're really excited to have a baby, and you go to the hospital... And they tell you that your fetus isn't going to make it. Yeah. And they have to tell you that it's because there's something wrong with their sonic hedgehog gene. It's just kind of a slap in the face to the seriousness of that situation. Yeah, that's... So scientists have to be very careful with the way that they are naming different things that they discover. That's really unfortunate. Yeah. And I think um, I saw some of the pictures on Cammie's phone. Um, Like, I think the gene physically resembles... Sonic the Hedgehog, like, 
slightly. Yeah, it's spiky and it's fast. But in that, like, in that context, that's a very, like, serious, somber moment. Mm -hmm. And then to say, oh, yeah, you have something wrong with your Sonic the Hedgehog genes. Yeah, the name of the condition is holoprosencephaly. Okay. So that's just a little bit of a tangent about... Scientists are bad at naming things. (laughs) And I don't think Bertaccini is bad at naming things. No, those are great names. Yeah, they're really, I think it's fitting to name it after the protectors of agriculture when it's something that's really going to have really important impact impact on the environment. Yeah. And especially coming from something that was originally seen as a pest. Yeah, and also like an accident. Mm Mm-hmm. Like... I just, I love accidental science. It's the best kind of science. (laughs) Do you know what bioremediation is or biorecycling? Yes, I've heard of that. It's like um, bioremediation is using um, plants or insects, something natural, something Mm -hmm. like biology related to correct a problem in an environment. Like a uh, good example is how um, you can do bioremediation on like, crops kind of by like growing different crops every other season to put more nutrients back into the soil that would be like a type of bioremediation yeah so the definition that I have written down is that bioremediation is a branch of biotech Mm -hmm. that uses living organisms to remove contaminants from various environments so the plants Mm -hmm. could be a form of bioremediation if they're being planted to try to remove negative uh to, to remove things from the soil that are going to be having a bad impact on yeah now the rest that, of the now that I think about that um, a better a better example because the plants are removing things are um, specific plants that remove heavy metals from the soil right that there would be go. a great example yeah I'm gonna talk a little bit about the bacteria that you brought up because I actually did I was in a program in high school called JSHS it was junior science and humanities symposium I think mm-hmm and I did my research project on Idionella sakaiensis, which Ooh. is the bacteria mm-hmm. that was discovered in Japan in a dump that can <laughs> that can also break down PET. Is that another accidental discovery? Yeah. Accidental science mm-hmm. two two zero. Yeah, it was found in a in a dump in Japan. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. And I did an experiment on it that didn't totally work out, but I was able to learn a lot about microbiology, and that's kind of my microbiology major origin story now that I think about it. Yeah. Shout out to Miss Eastman because she really helped me with that, and also <laughs> it was a really fun experience. But my experiment was basically I wanted to see if Idionella sakaiensis could break down other types of plastic. Okay, yeah. I don't know that my methods were necessarily the best just because of the limited uh, resources that I had within yeah. a high school lab. I was going to say, high school re- high school labs would not have the resources that like you could have access to now. Yeah, I spent $50 to get the a shipment of the bacterial sample, mm-hmm. and I learned how to plate it and isolate it and then I had little teeny tiny cut up pieces of different kinds of plastics that I put in a homemade liquid broth that I made out of like beef stock and stuff like that 
that's not that horrible. Like Right. The problem was I used really small quantities of plastic and then a lot of them mm-hmm. had the medium that I made got kind of stuck to the plastic so oh. I couldn't really see a difference in the weight. Yeah. But this is basically the first big uh, potential bioremediation mm-hmm. topic that we are maybe going to be able to use since then. In addition to idionellosakiensis, we now have the salivary enzymes of waxworms. Plastics are able to be ground up, but they do not biodegrade. They only create microplastics. Which are very bad. Um, they, they can cause a lot of health problems if you are exposed to them, mm-hmm. if you ingest them. Yeah, you don't think that you're being exposed to microplastics, but you absolutely are. Like, just living your daily life, you mm-hmm. are going to be ingesting microplastics. Yeah. Uh, probably don't eat things that have food-safe glitter in them, because oh. I know it says food-safe, but glitter is pl- a little piece of the plastic that are shiny. Ew. Yeah. That and glitter. Yeah, and then there's just all sorts of environmental sources of microplastics. If you go yeah. swimming in the ocean, microplastics. If you, if you eat fish... Gonna ruin fish for me, man. Well, think about it. So, when yeah, if you have tiny little plankton that are picking up the microplastics, and then the fish eat, then the the tiny fish eat the plankton, and then the big fish eat the plank, and then the big fish eat the little fish. Wait, so sushi's ruined? Well, not necessarily. It's just that I'm just trying to make a point that the microplastics are everywhere, not necessarily that you need to stop eating sushi, because I love sushi. I was going to say, like, we both love sushi, mm-hmm. and, like, I won't stop eating it. No, me neither. Yeah. I just didn't think um, microplastics would be in fish. Like, once, like when you break it down like mm-hmm. that, like, yeah, it's obvious, but... Um, like when you go to the store and you're buy- and you're buying stuff, you think, "Oh, fish, good. This is like super healthy. This is good for you." And it is, but there's also microplastics in there. Mm-hmm. You just don't think about it. Yeah, and I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to explain yeah. how big of an impact this discovery can have because mm-hmm. we can try to prevent more microplastics from being absolutely added to the environment. So, how do you think we could use? these bioremediation factors like the waxworm enzymes mm-hmm. how, how would we be able to use these to combat the plastic problem i actually think about this okay a lot sometimes mm-hmm. just like hmm, i wonder how you could apply the bacteria that eat plastics to actual plastics mm-hmm. so um it's okay if you don't yeah. have an answer i just want to know if you have a guess uh, the first thing I would think of is like collecting all the plastics and then somehow convincing the worms to eat the plastics. Like if that's the only thing that they can have access to or like um, or like the scientist did, or I guess she's not a scientist, the beekeeper. No, she is a scientist. She is, she's a molecular biologist. Oh, okay. But okay. she was a, a hobby beekeeper. beekeeper okay. Mm-hmm. Or like somehow trapping them in the plastic that you want to degrade anyway and having them eat themselves out. That's actually really good ideas. Mm-hmm. The way that Bertaccini suggests that mm-hmm. they could be applied, this is still very early in development because this was such a recent discovery, mm-hmm. but the enzymes could be separately synthesized yeah. from the waxworms because if we have a bunch of waxworms 
that's going to be not very cost effective and they're going to also release a lot of CO2. Mm -hmm. So we could mix the enzymes with water after we have synthesized them and pour it onto plastic and waste management facilities. Mm -hmm. And she said that she thinks this might be an ideal solution for remote locations without the ability to recycle and could eventually become available in individual homes. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. And um, especially with, uh, what is it, single stream recycling, Uh, the type of recycling where you just put everything in one bin, you could apply it to that. And then you don't need to like, you you wouldn't need to sort the plastic further. You know what I mean? Well, I think you would need to separate the type of plastic because... Oh, it only works on... Polyethylene. I I saw some early studies that Mm -hmm. suggested that it would be able to break down some other types of plastic. Yeah. But I'm not confident enough in saying that, that I'm going to say 100% that it can break down any type of plastic other than PET. It could definitely be a future application, though. Yep. And home use, like, okay... Think about, like, 10 years in the future, you can just go to the store and get a, like, spray bottle of, like, plastic away. <laughs> and you just spray it on your plastic, and then it goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that I'm really excited about, and it just goes to show that a lot of times we see certain animals as bothersome or as not having any particular value but they can actually do really cool things that we just don't know about yet. So this just completely changed my perspective on a type of insect that I honestly really disliked. Yeah, like mm-hmm. you think of something as a pest, but then you get you get a new perspective on it, mm-hmm. and it changes everything, especially like, like just looking at these little guys, like physically, like you don't think much of them. Right. But knowing that they have this like... Um, this really special ability. Yeah, mm-hmm. that will be able to help with the environment. Yeah. So basically the take-home lesson is that different insects aren't necessarily what meets the eye, and they might have something really cool to offer the world. Mm-hmm. And accidental science. And accidental science is the best kind. Is the, abs- hands down, mm-hmm. best kind. From a narrative perspective, anyway. It makes for the best movies. Abs- the best stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.